0: You're listening to audio from Praxis Church, Kelowna. Praxis is a new church plant that exists to follow Jesus and make him known. If you're interested in finding out more or joining us in person, go to praxischurch.ca. Good morning, everybody. How's it going? Doing well? Good, good. I will assume that you're doing well. When uh, Pastor Josh asked me to come come be a part of this series, I got super excited. One, because I've heard so much about Praxis, I feel like a reality TV show could be made about this little church. And you're a few years already, one year or something. But we've we've prayed for you, we've given and uh, and listened to all the stories, and it's super exciting. Um, be assured that you have a pastor who love loves this this city, and I think there's going to be great things a, a part of, of of Praxis that we're going to hear for years to come. So. It's a privilege to get to be a part of it, especially when I heard about this series, because I thought this is a fantastic series. I was raised in the church. You could still see my heel marks at North Shore Alliance Church, where I was drugged to church every single Sunday. Only stayed interested because of the gummy bears I knew when the, when the guy got up to speak. My mom would put out a little bag, and all of a sudden everything was right again. <clears throat> Never once did I hear a single thing about doubting and what you could, uh, or at least the Christian response to what we do when we have a doubt. If anything, I learned just through being a part of a culture, the culture of of my particular church and and having, you know, now years of experience in all kinds of churches, doubting is just not something we talk about. The Bible talks about it. I mean, right in the book of Jude, it says, have compassion on those who are doubting. Have compassion on those who are doubting. But it seems like we do what most of... Uh, with you know what, what I do with my doubts and it's what I do with my emotions is I just stuff them and hope that they never come out and I never see them. And that was okay for a while. In fact, I got through church culture pretty well. Like I r- rose to the top of the ranks of youth group. I learned that there were some kind of kids who would express a question or like, are you sure that happened in the Bible? Or what about this? Or uh, I, I'm kind of questioning my faith. And those kind of kids were not invited out for Slurpees. And they were kind of told like, no, just believe like the good kids. And and then maybe you'll be one of us, right? So always the, the skeptics, the doubters, we're kind of always on the outside and, you know, and we, that's how we learn how to treat them. And I was kind of one of them, but I was, uh, never would tell anybody because that's not how you get invited out to hang out with the youth pastor, right? You'll be the good kid. And so one other thing that good kids in the youth group do is they go to Bible college after they graduate. So I went to the frozen tundra of Regina, Saskatchewan, where I completed a four-year theology degree, having never taken a single class on how to deal with doubts, skepticism in ourselves or in other people. So four-year program designed to equip pastors for leadership, not a single class on doubt, skepticism, or this um, field of discipline we call apologetics, which is just giving an answer to the, the questions about why we believe Christianity is true. It wasn't until I was employed at a church as a youth pastor that all of a sudden those repressed doubts and questions that I had been carrying around for so many years all of a sudden had to come to the surface with this rise of a thing called YouTube. I had these students who were telling me about these videos that a friend had sent them. See, I would send them out, and I would go, go to your public school, tell people about Jesus, tell them about how, how good he's been to you, about what he did for you, and about how he's transformed your life and how he could do the same for them. Well, they come back and say, Pastor, Pastor, we did that, and they sent us this video about why everything we said is untrue, and, and the videos... I watched them late at night because I didn't want to watch them during hours where I, you know, where I like work hours where if you get caught watching too much YouTube at, at work, unless you're a youth pastor, I guess it's fine. But uh, in those days, you couldn't do it. So I would go home and I remember watching and be like, oh my goodness, like if this is true, everything that I have built this reputation of being John the Christian guy, I invested in my education to be a Christian and then I was employed to be a good Christian and my pension even was caught up in this statements that Christianity was true. So I had a lot of skin in the game, so to speak. And when I watched these videos, I was confronted with these questions that I'd never been addressed. What if it's not true? And and all of a sudden, I I had a crisis of belief. It was a crisis that cost me everything. And by that, I mean my vehicles, I had a car and a motorcycle, and I had possessions in North America, and I sold everything to go to study uh, this field of Christian apologetics. Not just because it was something to do to advance my education. But it was my own faith was at risk, where I realized I better learn some of the answers to these questions if I'm going to stay in the game for myself and to be able to lead the church in the 21st century. Because up until that point, I realized that nobody was talking about these. I mean, this was a long time ago, before we had courageous uh, churches taking on questions of what do you do with your doubts and some of the, the, the difficult topics that uh, you guys have been wrestling with. So this was a long time ago. And so it was. I had to sell everything. I got a chance to study at the University of Oxford where I got to ask questions in a safe place with people who had been wrestling with this for a long time. And doubts in this place were encouraged. Some of the challenges that we face as Christians in the 21st century was what we were talking about all year long. I had an amazing year and came home and was just so excited to, to talk and share about some of the things that I learned uh, put a lot of them into a book, so some, of the people, some people were very generous with helping me get there, and so I wanted to have something, a resource um, as a thank you. So this is a book called Clear Minds and Dirty Feet, and a lot of the stuff that I will talk about t- today is, is a chapter in this. Uh, there'll be a lot that I can't say, like people do entire PhDs on the relationship between Christianity and science, but I'm, I was able to put it into just one chapter, and so I'll do my best to, to give you my response to this really tough question or at least it was a tough question for me, one that almost shook the foundations of my my own personal journey with with being a Christian. I want to give this to some of you today. We don't have a ton of copies, but uh, there will be some. We've saved some for the 11 o'clock service, uh, and I want to save this one copy for somebody. You can have that. Maybe take communion and double up with getting a free gift at the end of the service. But the reason why uh, we're giving it out, if you know somebody that, that would take this. Uh, it's our gift to you. If you know, um, maybe yourself, or uh, you just want to learn, like if you're in a, uh, one of those seasons, where you're just wanting to learn what do Christians believe about these tough topics, I want to give that to you as a gift. Uh, the rest of you that just like reading books, um, you have to buy it on Amazon. I encourage you that all the proceeds go to needy children. They are my children, and they are very needy. I assure you. <laughs> And so because my wife doesn't like having a lot of inventory in the basement, Amazon is a great thing where you order it and it'll go right to you at your door in a few days. So there you go. Uh, that book is what I felt like was my arrival to like saying, I think I'm I think going to be good. Uh, then after it found out that I wrote a book on Christian apologetics, there was uh, a guy traveling across Canada, a professional uh, debater named Matt Dillahunty. He was a famous or at least famous in the atheist community for... Uh, for being uh, you know, antagonistic to the gospel, and he was going around across Canada, and he was just finding people to debate. So I'd never done a debate before. Someone asked me if I wanted to do it, and I had to stand in front of the, um, a university in Alberta and defend the Christian position on uh, does science lead towards God or away from God. And I think that was one of my moments when I really felt like, you know, this is my chance now. I was once so scared of a grade 9 student sending me a YouTube link, and now I'm standing with, toe-to-toe with this professional uh, atheist debater. So I feel like uh, that was a moment. That video is on YouTube. You can watch it later. They tell you if, you know, don't read YouTube comments. Just, it's just not good for you in general. But especially if you are in the video itself, don't go to YouTube comments. I don't know how many influencers are out here. You probably already know that. But uh, don't go to YouTube comments. I, I went through some of them. And in fact, I just took this screenshot the other night because I wanted to refresh myself on, on this topic again. And so this is what Avedic said. It was six years ago. So there's, in time, he was quoting or talking to this guy named Ian G. He says, John Morrison seems like a nice guy. I'd enjoy hanging out with him and just talking. I can't say that for the large majority of theist debaters, but his position and his arguments are absurdly unjustified and fallacious. I just can't respect his mind, but I like the guy. (laughs) Maybe he's just a nice guy with a brain that's not up to par. How you feel about a Vedic, is up, you can, the jury will be out and you can decide at the end if he's right or not. Maybe he's subconsciously aware of how problematic his reasoning is on this topic. If the latter is the case, he'll be an atheist in a couple of years. Well by the grace of God, that was six years ago, I'm still not an atheist and the things that I learned then are still holding true and I hope they will be true for you as well. I want to share with you the reasons why I'm no longer afraid of science. Growing up in youth groups, science was always the enemy, right? Every time someone talked about science, it was in scare quotes. So it'd say, well, the science believes this, but we believe this. So I had to make a decision growing up. Am I going to believe the scary science, or am I going to believe in whatever was presented, you know, uh, the truths of Christianity? And I believe that that was a false dichotomy, that the two actually work very well together according to the Christian worldview. So I'd like to share with you my six reasons of why I believe that, guided by our passage this morning from Psalm 24, verse 1. Now, I know there's lots of different ways to give sermons. Uh, You can take a verse and just go through it, or you can take a verse and then talk about why you think that verse is true. I'll be choosing the latter, but I know that you usually get a a really good dose of just going through the Bible verse by verse, and I think that is how the Bible should be taught. However, on this particular moment, we're doing a topic... And so I want you to look at Psalm 24, verse 1. You can see it on the screen here. If you can't get there as fast as I can read it. So here we go. Psalm 24, verse 1 says this, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. For he founded it on the seas and established it on the waters. The earth is God's and everything that belongs in it, including science, the discovery of what is true, and all of us who live in it and do that science. There you go. We're kind of done, right? No conflict. God made the world. We studied the world that he made. Where's the, what's the problem? Well, maybe there'll, some there will still be a problem, so let's just go through some of the major talking points of why some people believe that actually um, science and Christianity do not work well together. First thing that I think that they actually do work well together is because science is a gift from God. As a Christian, I read the Bible and I see that science is a gift from God. And it's in there early in the very beginning. Well, just after in the beginning, God made human beings. He made Adam and he said, Adam, now you could be doing a lot of things. You could waste your life uh, just napping all the time. You could waste your life just scrolling TikTok all the time. Now that was before TikTok was a thing, but definitely a warning that there's a way to waste your life. But a way to actually pursue a good life is to have a job. It's just a good idea for Adam to have a job. And so God gave him a job in a field of science. The field is uh, taxonomy, which is the naming of animals. God basically told Adam, I made this whole world, and I want you to explore it. And I'm going to give you authority to go and name some animals. So he maybe gave them, I don't know, these elaborate names. Probably got a little bored after all. It's like, oh, my goodness. That's a flying around. Okay, we'll call it a fly. That thing's eating ants. Okay, ant eater. Sure, good enough. But It's a job. It's a job, and, and it's in the, a science, a science of discovery. God, it seems, is inviting Adam to uh, pursue the world that he has made and, bring or, like, and discover some of the order. In, uh, in the New Testament, I see Jesus is very open to his disciples, uh, collecting evidence and then making a conclusion based on that evidence. So uh, when Jesus had been publicly uh, arrested, tried, and then convicted of, um, you know, the, the Jews made a big case against Pilate. Pilate said, you know, eventually we're going to, well, we'll get rid of him. Uh, it'll keep the masses happy. Jesus is killed on a cross. And Thomas sees the thing happen. And he knows even in those days, dead people stay dead. All of a sudden, there's this report that comes out that says, no, the, the dead guy, Jesus, is not dead. In fact, his disciples have seen him alive. And the Jerusalem is starting to murmur about how a, a dead man has come to life. Well, even in that uncivilized, unsophisticated Middle East first century, Thomas is sitting there with his legs crossed, I'm oh, sorry, his arms crossed, and says, no, I don't, uh, I don't believe it. Dead people stay dead. The evidence says that when people die, they don't just come back to life. All of a sudden, Jesus shows up, and he can't believe it, and Thomas is like, I still don't believe it, and what does Jesus tell him to do? Investigate the evidence. Follow the evidence where it leads, and then come to a conclusion of your own Thomas. See my hands, see my feet. There's nail marks here. I was once dead, now I'm alive. So Jesus doesn't condemn him, doesn't say, you know, forget about it, uh, ignore your brain. He says, no, look at the evidence. It is encouraged to discover what is true and then make a conclusion. Science is a gift from God in the Bible and not a threat. There is a popular belief around many skeptics and even in, in church that to be afraid of science because the more scientific discovery happens, the less we need God so there was this idea that, you know, in the old days, we used to say God knew or uh, did everything, right? We used to say, you know, why, why was uh, the thunder? It's because the angels were bowling and it was just making noise. Or maybe there's rain and the, that's why the angels were crying. And, and basically we attributed everything that we didn't know to some sort of spiritual phenomenon. But then as science came along, we realized that, no, it wasn't about the angels bowling or crying, it was weather systems that were doing it. In fact, set patterns that happen when cold fronts meet warm fronts, it makes thunder. So we don't need to attribute that to supernatural causes anymore. We know that the science has done it. And so we don't need spiritual explanations anymore. This is what is commonly called the God of the gaps argument, that God is only left to the gaps, and the more that science can shrink those gaps, the less we need God. And therefore, it imagines this argument, this utopian world, where science can eventually explain everything and that we don't need silly, trivial explanations for the world like God did it. But what it, doesn't, what it fails to mention is the idea that God could actually be God of everything. That the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, and he founded it on seas and established it. And he, as part of the establishing is setting up laws. Laws of physics, laws in chemistry, laws of biology, just the way things work. He made an orderly world. A world that we didn't put that order in, we discover the order. And we discover the order, and it opens our eyes that if there is order, there must be someone who put order in there. And so my first point is that science is a gift from God, and and people have found it as a gift. People have discovered it In, in history. As they find things, they say, wow, this is amazing. Where did this amazingness come from? And they attribute it to God. Some famous names throughout the history of science. I'll just rattle off a few. Nicholas Copernicus. He's the 16th century astronomer who humbled all of us by telling us that we are not the center of the universe. 16th century astronomer, he basically said this as he's looking at the the physics and the uh, astronomy. He says, who could live in close contact with the most consummate order and divine wisdom and not feel drawn to the loftiest aspirations? Who could not adore the architect of all these things? Copernicus looked into the stars and he realized there was order. And he said, this order doesn't come from nowhere. This... I see architecture, I have to credit it to an architect. Johannes Kepler of the 17th century, one of history's greatest astronomers as well, he said, my Lord and my creator, I would like to proclaim the magnificence of your works to men to the extent that my limited intelligence can understand. So Kepler is saying how, how amazing his discoveries are. He wants to tell everybody about how great God is. Isaac Newton, 18th century founder of theoretical physics said this, the admirable arrangement and harmony of the universe could only have come from the plan of an omniscient and omnipotent being. Finally, a more well-known name in the 20th century, Thomas Edison, the inventor, uh, famous inventor, held over 1,200 patents. He said, my utmost respect and admiration to go to all the engineers, especially the greatest of them all, God. See, in the past, it was not God or science. It wasn't Christianity and religion versus scientific discovery. They saw it as the world, what they used to call the two books. They said there's the word of God's Word, which is the Bible, starts with Genesis, ends with Revelation, God revealed word through the Bible, and the book of God's world, which is the the study of, of this universe that He made and, and the earth and study of, of human beings, just a study of truth. And both of those books, the book of God's Word and the Book of God's World, were to point us to Him. Psalm 19, verse 1 says, the heavens declare the glory of God. You want to know what God is like? You can actually study his created world and find out what God is like, just like you could study the Bible and find out what God is like as well. So the first point is that science is a gift from God, not a threat, but secondly, that science can actually lead us to worship God. Science can lead us in the worship of God. I once stood beside some people that were worshiping God. We were at St. Aldade's Church on the, the, just in, in Oxford there. On Sunday mornings, I would go to church. And in those days in church, we actually talked to each other, right? We didn't just come in and, and leave. I saw you guys tend to like each other, which is good to see. It's not always the case in a lot of places. One of the ways that we used to talk to each other was this, the introvert's nightmare every single Sunday morning. Do you know what I'm talking about? Stand up and greet somebody, Right? You hated that moment. Some people, some people miss it. Some people are like, oh, that's the best discovery we've made in the post-COVID world. It's not having to stand up and shake hands anymore. But we still did that back in those days. And the question in a university town always seems to come up. You know, what's your name and what are you here for? Same in prison. <laughs> and what are you here for usually means what are you studying? Right? And it turns out that I was standing beside some really cool people. One guy's the here in uh, studying molecular physics, and the other person's uh, studying, I mean, just random things, just like really cool scientific discovery. And then, I, of course, I had no idea, right, recovering youth pastor, just listening to them talk about the cool things they're studying. I just knew that it was under the banner of science. So I would tell that story maybe after church when we were leaving. i said, you know, it's really interesting that you're here in church on a Sunday morning having studied science from Monday to Friday, because where I came from, I saw this video on YouTube once that said that anybody who does science can't be serious about their Christian faith, and that science is actually opposite of faith. And here you are on a Sunday morning, and you seem to be just as dialed in as any of us are. So how, what's the what's the deal there? He said, "Well, Monday to Friday I learn about uh, th- the world, and sometimes it's not really controversial, right? On this day I put this tube, I put these things in this tube, heated up to this temperature, and this was the outcome. And then I did it again and again and again, and these are my conclusions. Not really all that controversial." I read a study from the University of Saskatchewan recently that they discovered the uh, health benefits of snot. Right? And so you can actually pick your nose and there's health benefits for it. So somebody's paid money, <laughs> given a grant for scientists to discover this, the, the, the value of boogers. And, uh, and that's, but that's, that has nothing to do with, with their faith, right? You could have an atheist or an uh, evangelical Christian. Both could be involved in that study and neither of them are finding if God is there or not. So most people I talk to... If they're, at the, you know, when they're studying science, they find no conflict at all. In fact, it's complete, almost completely irrelevant, except when you want to take it a bit deeper and say, well, what are you doing here on Sunday? And they say, well, actually, I see all the stuff that God has made, and I, I need to worship. I need to express something to God. And I find that Sundays are a great place to, to kind of tell God about how great he is. Uh, you know, and, and I should say, in my own journey, this has been the case just as I was kind of learning a little bit of this. There's just things that I took for granted uh, growing up, and I kind of went a little weird, I confess, and my friends would tell you I'd be like walking by a plant, and uh, all of a sudden, you know, my friends would be off going somewhere, I'd be, whoa, 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 hold on a second, you see this plant? Like, this plant is keeping us alive, and you just walked right by it, right? Like, you breathe onto it, and it takes that, and it lives, and then it breathes out, and gives you something to live. Like, There's something going on here, and we just walk by it. That's a little awkward. You do that too often, right? You stop getting invited out to stuff. But I'd, like, taste raspberries, and I'd be like, wow, this could have tasted like chalk or cardboard or something, but there's this amazing flavor to it, and it led me, the more I studied this, um, obviously I wasn't studying at a very high level, but at least (laughs) studying raspberries and how plants breathe on you, but the, the truth is that the more you study, the more you actually can learn that science leads us to worship God John Polkinghorne, a professor at the University of Oxford in the 21st century, says this, a more contemporary voice. He said, our universe is beautiful, and it's constantly rewarding scientists with the experience of wonder at the marvelous order which is revealed through the labors of their research. The people that I worship with on a Sunday morning, my own experience in Polkinghorne, would say that science is not exclusive to people believing in faith. In fact, it's a catalyst for them deepening their faith in the worship of God. So science is a gift from God, I believe the Bible encourages us to do it, and it leads us to worship. And thirdly, science can protect us from false worship or idolatry. Idolatry is the worship of anything other than God. See, all of us are motivated to worship something. We will put something higher, and we, 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 will, um, we will worship. That's just the nature of human beings. We want to find some, something or someone to worship. To quote the great theologian Bob Dylan, Sorry to translate that. It may be the devil or it may be the Lord, Dylan told us, but in the end, you've got to serve somebody. And that's the nature of, of what we do. We either serve created things or we serve creator. But the thing is about what Christianity tells us is that there's, there's something special about serving the creator and studying the, his creation. The created things. So maybe the ancients would have said, whoa, 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 let's, let's not study the sun. I mean, it's this big ball of energy. It's giving us light. It's giving us heat. It's amazing. We don't understand it all. So let's just worship it instead. Okay? And, and they would do that. They would worship And then someone would come along and say, hold on, I think we got it a little, our understanding wrong about the sun. I want to share a few things I've observed about the sun's effects. If you're wrong about something and everybody's worshiping it, you're committing blasphemy. So you're going to be pretty careful about your theories, right? You're going to hold them back a little bit, keep your cards a little closer. You're not going to study the sun if it is the, supposed to be the divine. But if the sun was created by something, and it's just a creation, just like all the other things, then you're more than welcome to study it. You're invited to study it in the understanding, to get, to get more understanding of it. And you could even be wrong, right? So we can actually be humble and approach uh, God's created world and not worship the world, So we know that the world, as amazing as it is, is not deserving of our worship. We can be in wonder of it if the wonder points to God, but we don't worship it. And I think that's an important distinction, is that the Bible always makes clear that there is a distinction between creator and created. So it is not all one. God is not within His creation. He is outside of His creation, and that's why it's okay to study His creation and even be wrong sometimes. And the Lord knows... Scientific discovery has a long track record of being wrong about many things. In fact, that's the very thing that it's doing. Which leads to my fourth point, that science is deeply flawed because we are deeply flawed. Regardless of your worldview, no matter what your upbringing, no matter what holy books, or who your favorite teachers are, or your gurus, we all know from our own experience and very common amongst much of the literature of all the major religions, that something has gone wrong with this world. You can't make sense of broken bodies, broken dreams, broken hearts, broken desires. Just things are not as they should be and we all kind of know it and we all kind of feel it. Why would we expect that science wouldn't be the same? And the truth is that if you just read through the history of science, it's just one person telling the, other, the previous generation that they were wrong and then the next someone, and I know that because I'm not always right. And I've been wrong before. And I stand on the shoulders of people who've been wrong before. We come from a long history of people that have been wrong about stuff. But it seems to me like the conclusion to the data is this. Could you imagine how much more cordial things would be if, if we just treated science like that and the discovery of the world? Instead, what happens is you have these camps that form. Right? You have camps and some have more power and some have less power. Some are considered the in-group or in-vogue at the time and some are considered outliers until one day, everything switches, right? And you have people that are afraid to be in the out group and people that are afraid to lose their position in the in group. You have people that are afraid to lose their funding because if they lose their funding, now they can't pay their bills anymore, so they don't say things that they think because they're afraid of it being wrong or misconstrued or or upsetting their supervisor. And because of that, science is a deeply flawed community, even though the, the pursuit of science is rather neutral. Just what is true? and how do we understand this world? But when you get communities involved and personalities and human psychology, it becomes a deeply flawed thing. Just to to pick one example, I don't know, did you guys have COVID out here? And not did you actually have it, I I don't, you know, those with your tinfoil hats on, you can leave them underneath your chair or whatever, but I'm not saying did COVID happen to you personally? I mean, did you have to deal with the fact that there was a lot of people with differing views on what science said? And somebody would say, well, you know, I heard a scientist say this, and we don't even, we, we've don't shown that's not true because the scientist said this. And in fact, that scientist has changed their mind three times about what the novel coronavirus is. To which I said, yeah, because that's what science does. When you have a novel virus all of a sudden emerge, you've got to figure out what is this thing. And so you make a hypothesis, and then you, you try it out. And if, it, if you're wrong, you change your hypothesis. So you have experts on this side and experts on this side and they're disagreeing about something which is what happens when, when you're dealing with this, right? They're, they're making their interpretations and then you have the, the three-year-old on social media trying to say, well, this is what I think. You know why I say three-year-old? At my house, I'll just give you an example. We have a, a, a seven, a five, and a three-year-old. Uh, I don't remember their names anymore but um, <laughs> I did at one point and then the third one came and it was just like I just start picking every name. Just, what is your name? I never know. But when we hear conflict out coming from downstairs uh, and a fight emerging from an otherwise peaceful playroom at, for the few moments that it was peaceful, then I hear one, one party crying, I hear another party crying, and they both come running up and they're both crying and they're accusing each other of something. They did wrong, they did wrong, she did this first, she did this first. Who are we left with but the three-year-old? Now we're asking a three-year-old to interpret the events, can barely wipe their own bum, okay, and now they're having to play justice. Right? <laughs> they are now. They are now the the, um, the court, the jury. What happened? And the three. I don't know. That she hit her. What actually? Can he, and and she can't give us a um, a coherent answer. I think that's what social media was during COVID. It was the two experts fighting with each other behind the scenes, and then the three-year-old trying to interpret it all. And the only thing we needed was just a little bit of humility through the whole thing, saying we don't know what this is. We're trying to figure out, and we will continue to work on it. So again, I'm not trying to launch a philosophical, controversial bomb. I'm just saying we had a great case study of what science was throughout this painful COVID era, which was a bunch of people trying to figure out what is this and what's the appropriate response, and many of them getting it wrong, like science always does. So that's the fourth point. Science is deeply flawed because we are deeply flawed, and we just need a little bit of humility as we approach what science is before we start saying, well, the science says this. Well, the science is always changing, and we need to be humble about that. Number five, science is part of God's redemption plan for the world. Science is part of God's redemption plan for the world. Genesis 3 is a, is a terrible moment in, in human history. God makes us this beautiful paradise, and he just says, like, okay, I'm just going to give you a choice just to stay away from this one tree. You can have everything in this beautiful area and... and you know, trust me that this tree is a bad idea. So what our, our first um, parents, Adam and Eve, do? They eat from the tree, and now all of a sudden things are broken. God's beautiful, peaceful creation has been broken. And there's problems with that now. This is where we start to understand that this is why there's sicknesses. This is why there's all the, the pain in our world. And this, you know, this is even why it says it right there in Genesis 3. This is why childbearing is going to be very difficult. So that's the problem, right? For For those of us who had moms, all of us had moms at one point. We had to be born. It was a painful time. We came into the world with pain and we will produce offspring that come into the world through pain. However, scientists one day figured out that there was a way to make it a little less painful for women to have babies. And that was the thing called the epidural. Now, not everybody, this is not for everybody. My wife, for some reason, carries this proud badge for two children. Uh, that she could do what's called natural childbirth, right? Which is basically just go through it without any kind of painkillers, without any epidural. I've never seen her really brag about it. She probably subtly tries to flex, but it's not coming up all the time so much. When I saw what had she had to go through to bear this badge of natural childbirth, I'm like, why didn't she take the out? Like you knew about the epidural. Well, sure enough, by child number three, I guess she'd had enough of that, and she wanted the epidural. And as a witness to the whole thing, I was thinking, wow, that was way easier. And if it wasn't for the science saying that just with a little poke in the back, (laughs) sorry, those of you... (laughs) seemed like (laughs) a little poke in the back, that you could have a much better, (laughs) just things right out there, no problem. Why not thank the science as a little bit of grace from God to say, like, I know things are difficult in this world. But I'm going to put in a system that you guys can actually make it a little bit less difficult. So there's people dying of polio. We have a vaccine that keeps people from dying from polio. People got a bad headache or a backache. We have things called Tylenol and painkillers. I don't know why people take so much pride. Like, I never seen a guy go like, oh, I had open-heart surgery. I said, just, Doc, just cut me right open, keep me alive, and just rip me right open and just do it. I want to be here to see the whole thing. Oh, well, the science has made things like open heart surgery so much more bearable. The fact that even we could have open heart surgery uh, when we could be dead is a is an, a, a gift of science. And this is the thing that's cool is that we can actually be thankful for this. That there's so many cool things that science has given us. Yesterday I woke up in Nashville, and uh, you know, if you want to really scare uh, a pastor, bring in a guest speaker. Just when he texts me saying, "Hey, are you all ready for tomorrow?" I say, "Yeah, I'm in Nashville, ready to go." But the cool thing is I got on a plane early in the morning, flew uh, to Seattle and then into Vancouver, drove from Vancouver to Abbotsford, had dinner with my family and then drove along the Highway 97 listening to any music that I wanted to, you know, and like not no Encanto, no Wiggles, just whatever I wanted to listen to from my phone. Coolest experience, right? Where you can actually, you don't have to have the old CD case. Remember, you had to bring the big CD case here and what do I want to listen to? You're trying to drive on the highway and pick your CDs, right? Well, instead, I, what I got to do was just this amazing experience going from Nashville in, a, in an aluminum can, right? Of course, Janice beside me was like, oh, look at the pretzels. They're so small these days. Like, can you believe the service and airplanes? These? I'm just like, Janice, do you realize that we are flying in a tin can at 30,000 feet going uh, you know, 700 miles an hour or something to get across the continent? Oh, but the pretzels are dry and uh, not in the service. It's like She wasn't appreciating the gift of science at that point. Science has made our lives so much easier, and who do we thank for that? I would thank it's a gift of God's grace to us. Now, here's the thing. It's just a little bit of grace, because we still know that we still get hurt, and we still get sick, and we still um, you know, have a, all this brokenness that we've all brought into church this morning, and that our neighbors and friends are feeling. But it's a, a little taste of the place where God promises, Jesus promises, that he's going to make all things new one day. That's going to be no more pain, and no more hurt, no more brokenness, and it's going to be this amazing experience. But in the meantime, the world is just a little bit more bearable because of the gift of science. And I believe it's a foretaste of God's redemption plan for the entire world to reverse the curse of sin and make all sad things come untrue. So that's number five. If you're following along, we've got science is a gift. It, uh it leads us to worship. Science can protect us from idolatry. It's flawed because we are flawed. Science is part of God's redemption plan. And sixthly, science and the Bible, or the Bible actually makes scientific statements. So maybe this seemed a little bit um, vanilla. Maybe I wasn't getting controversial enough. But the Bible actually gets into the conversation. It doesn't just provide us the worldview, like the earth is God's, you know. But it actually makes some scientific statements. Let me just read two of them to you. I'll go one at a time, actually. The first one comes right in the beginning, at the beginning of the Bible, and in the beginning, where it says in Genesis 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Just trying to read the room here to see uh, how many steady-state universe theorists there is. Okay, seems like none. None of you Aristotelians who go back all the way where they believe that the the universe had just always existed um, before the, the general consensus, unless you were believing Genesis, was that the, the universe was just always there. There was no beginning and there was no end. And then a Catholic priest who also got an education at MIT, he was a contemporary of Einstein, a guy named George Lemaitre, was studying the universe and the expansiveness of it, and he realized that the universe is actually getting a lot bigger. And it triggered an idea that maybe it hasn't always been uh, here. In fact, if it's getting bigger, there must have been a time when it was a little smaller and a little smaller, and a little smaller, and a little smaller. In fact, the universe, he proposed, actually had a beginning. And this was very controversial at the time, so he had to go around and present it. He went over Einstein, who gave him a standing ovation, who said, this is the greatest discovery in in physics that we've ever had of our day. So it was a groundbreaking discovery that the universe actually had a beginning. Now, the skeptics didn't know what to do with this because for so long they'd they'd said, well, the Bible has nothing to say to the scientific community. But the Bible had it right there for 3,000 years. The Hebrews were the ones who first penned the words in the beginning, that the universe had a beginning and the Bible has said it all the time. So Lemaître's discovery sure stunk a little to them of the conflict between science and religion. So what atheists went on Um, you know, to to the media and basically was saying, you know, Lemaître and his buddies, they all believe in that Big Bang. And it was actually the, so the Big Bang was the the nickname for this discovery of the universe beginning from a Catholic priest. Fast forward to today, when I walked in churches and talked to friends and family members, uh, speaking at camps as well, I'll just get more specific. One day I was walking by, um, walking by uh, a cabin. It was at nighttime, and we were talking about apologetic stuff, and science and religion came up. One of the, you know, bless their heart campers was saying, well, well what do we do? What, like, what do we believe about the Big Bang? And I, and I was outside the cabin, and I heard the counselor say, oh, no, 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 like, we don't believe in that. Like, no, no, we don't go, you don't talk about Big Bangs. You have to believe in what the Bible says. To which literally I was like, no, don't do it! I was going to bang on the cabin door, but then I realized I'm probably creating more nightmare problems than I'm solving here by banging on the cabin and saying, Stop it. But I had to, walk, I had to just say, like, what happened? <laughs> what happened from the greatest discovery for the complement between Christianity and science happening with Lemaître and the expanse of the universe leading to a singularity point where the universe was created or started, I guess, you know, not to go too deep into the Christian part of it, but the great, what I thought was the greatest discovery to which the, the secular community was like, no, 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 it can't be that, it can't be that, that's not true, That there's no way the universe had a beginning, to now many years later, the scientific community has completely accepted the, the origin of the universe this way, and the church has completely become embarrassed about it, so much so that we're not teaching kids about how amazing this discovery is. To me, I said, something went wrong, and I don't understand it myself, because to me, one of the reasons why I'm standing here, and I'm able to articulate that uh, I am a Christian, despite having wrestled with this Christianity and science question, is because I am so encouraged by the fact that the Bible is confirmed through scientific discovery. And in one this case particular, this was a big one, that the universe had a beginning. Now, if we had more time, we could say, how long ago was that beginning? But I really don't care, personally. And if you want to, direct all your emails about that to Pastor Josh. He would love to debate <laughs> with you. But I can say this, there's great Christians on one side that believe in one position, and there's great Christians on the other side who believe in the other one. And I've talked to both of them, and I understand why they believe what they believe. And I'm just the three-year-old on social media trying to, trying to understand both of them. But I know that the, you can believe anything about that beginning of the universe. All you ought to do is be encouraged that it was the start of everything, the start of God's great plan for history, uh, of which we are a part of it. So that's one. I said there was two. The second thing is the the Bible says that there's a beginning, but it also says that it's not going to last forever. So tucked into the book of Isaiah, written around 400 years before Jesus, so many thousands of years ago, was this little line here. Lift up your eyes to the heavens, Isaiah says, and look out at the earth beneath. For the heavens vanish like smoke, and the earth will wear out like a garment. So there's that little uh, simile in there. And I understand it's not really scientific language, uh, it's a simile. I have a friend who, he always spoke with similes, you know, he's one of those artistic poetic types, right, it was, it was like, it was like, it was like really annoying. But this is a, a simile that's going to flag for us to be aware that the world that we live in is not fi- uh, infinite, in that there is an end date to it at some point. The physicists would pick this up, and they would call it the heat death of the universe. So our great, glorious sun, which provides us with so much energy, with so much heat. You guys in Kelowna, you know about the sun, right? This is a beautiful thing. Imagine what Kelowna would be with no sun, right? Uh, Imagine that it's gone, and all of a sudden, there's no life. There's no uh, anything, really. In fact, there's no energy. The the sun is going to either blow up or burn out at some point, the scientists will tell us, leading to a loss of life across our entire uh, solar system, our precious lives included. So the Bible has this warning for us that the scientists would confirm that this place isn't going to be around forever. And that's a a good reality check for us, that all those things that we care so much about, right, making sure we have the best phones, or making sure we have nice cars, or making sure we're in the in-group, all those things are not going to matter one day as soon as the heat death of the universe comes. Or Jesus comes back. Now again, we could discuss timelines, I'm not sure says in the Bible, he's coming soon. But I really don't know what soon means, to be honest with you. I don't even pretend to. I have my own interpretations of what soon means. Like when my wife says, can you do the dishes? And I say, I'm coming soon. She said, well, I thought, I thought you meant you were coming soon. And I said, well, according to Jesus, soon could be 2,000 years. In my family, I'm, I'm, the, I'm the soaker. Do you know what this means by the soaker? In every couple, there's, there's two different philosophies of when the dishes should be done. The first person wants to get them done right away. Like, get the dishes, the last spoonful is in of dessert, let's get the dishes done. That's one philosophy, and many hold to it. I'm of the position that when the dishes are just finished, they need time to soak. Right? So you put them in, and then you soak them. And soaking could last for minutes, or it could be hours. But I'm coming soon means I'll get to them eventually. And I think that's what, when Jesus said, you know, I'm coming soon. this is a prediction that the Bible is making, that maybe the universe will end like this. In fact, that's what he says it will be. But it's a prediction, nonetheless, of how everything will be wrapped up. So now we have to make an educated guess. Do we trust that when Jesus said, you know, that I'm coming soon and that's going to be the end of it, is going to be the end of it? Well, we are, we're all making our wager. We're all making our wager and making a hypothesis of whether it's true or not. And to me, the reason why I'm a Christian, the reason why I believe that, that Jesus is holding the universe, that this is God's world and everything in it is because I trust the evidence. I trust that there is too much design and order and laws to just come from chaos. I trust that when he made us and when the Bible says that we walked away, it explains so much of the pain uh, that I've seen in my life throughout history and in present and that I see going on in our world. I understand when the Bible says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, it makes sense with my experience. I conclude that that is the problem with the world, is this problem of sin. And then when I look at Jesus, that God so loved the world, he sent his one and only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish in their sin but have eternal life. I trust in that because I trust in the claims that Jesus made and that he backed them up with a, with a resurrection. You'll be hearing about that, uh, the evidence why Christians believe that later. But I've studied those claims and I believe that it's true. And I believe that he created me for a purpose, for a mission, and even though I have failed and I and, uh, get confused and I uh, make all kinds of mistakes, that he still has grace and he still has mercy and I'm Part of my mission, which is to convince other people that science doesn't prove God, that in fact, science, I believe, points us towards God, and it helps us have a rich and rewarding life, uh, knowing not only who God is, but the world and being amazed by that. And that's why I'm a follower of Jesus. And I stand on the shoulders of the fact that there's many, many Christians who've done high-level science and continue to follow, um, can follow God as well. There's one more group of scientists that I just found particularly interesting, and the question is science, and scientists, uh, are they against God? There was a lady named um, Elaine Howard Eklund. Uh, She wrote a book called uh, Science Versus Religion, What Scientists Really Think, and she took contemporary research. So in the 2000s, early 2000s, she surveyed 1,700 scientists, asking them deep questions about their faith, about worldview, whether they, you know, what they believed, from 21 elite uh, U.S. universities. So this was kind of the the, the study that we have of saying, like, where is the scientific community regarding their faith? So of all these, uh, you know, 1,700 scientists, the separation was between the two. I'll tell you. You don't even have to read the book. The the, the separation was 50%. So 50% of the highest level of scientists in our uh, uh, academia believe that 50% said, yes, I, I have some sort of strong commitment to my uh, faith, religion or some sort of spirituality, said no. But here's the interesting thing, is you could talk to the plumbers of Kelowna, you could talk to the realtors, you could talk to the lawyers, Well, probably don't talk to the lawyers, they'll probably charge you for the minutes, uh, and, and I don't think there's any faith in what I've seen from lawyers. Just kidding. But if you could t- look at all these different industries and talking to them about, you know, well, what's the split in your industry? And I bet you it's going to be the exact same as these high-level academics. they are probably going to get 50%. And when Elaine Howard Eklund asked them, what is it about that uh, that makes you walk away? And a lot of them said the same reasons that the plumbers and the realtors and the lawyers would tell you. They'd said, well, you know, I had a bad experience in church. Or I can't recon- reconcile the problem of suffering and evil. How could God be good and allow all this evil to happen in the world? So I've walked away because of that. Some of them would say, well, we just were never a religious family. We didn't have any faith in our family, so I, that's why I don't believe. It's the same thing, as you'll hear on the streets talking to your friends and family. The conclusion I wanted to tell with, leave with you is that it's never the science. or Sorry, it's not, I shouldn't say never. It's just not the science, according to the research of why people walk away. It wasn't, you know, I, I did the, the is God real experiment, and it turned out false. There's always something else. My friends, if you have some sort of question or or doubt or skepticism or you know somebody, I would argue that it's not the science that's really leading. There's something going on inside of them. And there's the same thing that's going on inside of me that makes me me want to walk away from God. We all have something, but I've, I've read this and I've wrestled with this for a long time. It cost me everything to go and study it. Took a lot of time to write about it and put my thoughts together. And I just believe that there is no conflict between science and Christianity. In fact, science and Christianity work so well together. We have a lot of history. We have a lot of present good stuff going on. And I believe it points to God more and more that the heavens do declare the glory of God.